Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cinema Snorkel. We're so happy to have you here. Today we're talking about the sequel of Avatar, Avatar 2, The Way of Water. Casey, welcome to the studio. Hi, Carlin. It's wonderful to be here. And I just want to first right off the bat say that for months, uh, my wife has been saying the shape of water. Avatar, <laughs> the shape of water. Yeah, that slipped out a couple times too. <laughs> I'm confused and I don't know what movie it is I just saw. I don't know anything. It's Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. Then I was thinking, what if it was Avatar, the shape of you starring Ed Sheeran? And that, is a, that would be a great movie. But that's not the movie we're reviewing today. <laughs> We cannot let you bring your war here. Outcast. That's all they see. I see you. The way of water connects all things. Before your birth. And after your death. This is our home! I need you with me, and I need you to be strong. I'm really excited for this, Carlin. It's a podcast, many months in the making, you know, which is just a fraction of the amount of time James Cameron spent uh, getting this thing ready finally for or, us to see a decade later. Or the amount of dollars. Yeah, I do want to know, like, okay, 10 years ago, where was he in the process? Mm-hmm. Five years ago, where was he in the process? Like, has this movie been... It was filmed probably years ago because most of the the work is in the computer-generated uh, images. Yeah, I'm pretty sure these images were so jaw droppingly beautiful that it took 10 years to render this film because it's absolutely insane. I saw an IMAX 3D last night. And Carlin, I just want to say right on that first question, what did we like about the movie? Yeah. I'm not always the guy who's like, yeah, but the special effects were good. So it's good. Like there's sometimes you'll hear that. Like, how was the movie? And people will be like, wow, it was visually stunning. For me, that's usually code for devoid of plot. Uh, filled with continuity issues and bad acting and bad writing. I know I'm like particular in that sense, but a little alarm bell goes off in my head. But I mean it when I say this was visually stunning. I have probably never seen a movie that was this beautiful. If nothing else, I would come see it just for the visuals. I don't want to paint myself as a snob. I just feel like I never, ever say that. But I would. I would come back and watch it again. Yeah, those underwater scenes. And in 3D, oh, it's like you're really there. Did you watch it in 3D? I did. Well, here's the thing. I kind of passed out halfway through because you know how when you're in a movie and you like, they go underwater and you hold your breath um, when the characters <laughs> go underwater? No. Yeah. I That... I tried that, and so I didn't see it. <laughs> so it was like uh, you were trying to do the 5D effect. No, but I did see it twice, actually, in theaters, because, um, yeah, it just was stunning. Casey, so that's a lot to say that we liked about it. Was there anything you, you weren't, like, super big on? Look, I don't want to rip on this movie because I actually genuinely really liked it, and I think there's so much there. In fact, I think they did such a surprisingly good job about the care and the continuity. They're just building Mm -hmm. this world so beautifully. Mm -hmm. You can tell that for the filmmakers, for them, it's really about fleshing out what the Avatar world is like. That's a massive piece of their secret sauce and their formula. For example, like I loved when Sigourney Weaver's daughter 
is just laying in the water looking at the sand. I've done that a bunch as a kid. I don't know if I've done it in salt water or whatever, but like, you know, you're just in the pool and you're just like chilling. And I love that this movie was not so fast paced that they were able to devote some time just to like doing that. I thought that was beautiful. Mm, But they didn't devote enough time to tell us what's going to come out of the sand. I know, right? I was waiting to see. I was like, it's a little shrimp. It's a little seahorse. It's a little crap. No, it's a little nothing. A little nothing because then it's kind of the bullying scene. bullies coming up behind her. Did you realize that it was, you knew it was Sigourney Weaver um, playing her character? Yeah, some people had said that that voice threw them off a little bit and they just couldn't help but hear a 60-something-year-old woman. But I, for me, I bought it. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, I'm bad like that. I don't know. I, I think it works because she's an odd character. Like, she's meant to be odd. Um, and she has a supernatural birth. So I think if they were going to have a 60-year-old woman play any 14-year-old, this is the right 14-year-old. It was believable to me. So that's all I need to mm-hmm. say about that. But one thing that I appreciated is... So a good story, there's like a few things that they'll do. One is they'll build the rules first, so then they can play in them, in the world that they built. So one scene that I thought illustrated that really well was the whale hunting scene. So they're hunting these beautiful sentient whales, so tragic and terrible, but they have a process that they highlight so you know what happens next. They can't just blast it out of the sky They have to be careful with its like super life-giving brain. They can't Mm -hmm. just shoot it on its tough shell because that thing can deflect bullets. So they showed us step-by-step what they had to do. And I think for the most part, they play by those rules later. And what it did to me was build the dramatic tension. I'm like, oh, snap, here come the submarines. And here come the, you know, the harpoon guns that they fire. So we know what the danger is. And it felt real. The danger felt real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So funny. This movie, I guess I didn't know what to expect. And I just felt like the plot kept taking totally crazy turns that I wasn't expecting. Like when the boy started talking to the whale, I was like, can the whale understand him? Like I, I, for some reason it hadn't registered. Did you know the whales were like, the whales were persons? No, I discovered that. I discovered that with the, I guess, the audience as we, yeah, went on that kind of little subplot. I think I expected since we were following the Sully family, I didn't know that they knew that, but that's like built into the world. I guess they all know about these whales. But then did you notice mm. the the whale hunter, the Captain Nemo guy, um, who he's hunting the whale and at that, at that scene where he gets his arm lobbed off by the, that was like poetic justice for his severing the fin of the whale yeah i noticed (laughs) (laughs) i didn't notice not very subtle was it oh his arm is caught his arm's getting blown off oh yeah that's good um it kind of it it keeps with the um like the beauty of avatar is in the world building it's not in the subtlety of the villains or the subtlety of really any of the characters well yeah i wanted to comment on that because i think a gripe we had about the first avatar was like how on the nose could you be they literally quoted george w bush <laughs> when he's like shock and awe you know they like grabbed lines from his speech yep. and put it in the mouth of the colonel it was like Okay, Texas colonel who's kind of into war. So that, I think, turned a lot of people off from the first one because it was just so one-for-one, like, political allegory. I don't know if it's just that those messages have already seeped into culture so they don't feel avant-garde, but I felt like this one was pleasantly less of a political allegory and more of just a fantasy fiction that they were really fleshing out in its entirety. Yeah, definitely. 
So, Case, let's get into the themes, man. Like, what what do you think was the heart of this movie? What are they trying to say? Ooh, can I just real quick? Then I got to just say one or two gripes on the. Say so. <laughs> on oh, the oh, I thought this was. A, oh yeah, I you thought. thought. <laughs> <laughs> you thought. Listen, I just wanted to point out, given what I was saying about how well they did the continuity, it's just a crying shame that they lost some of that in the last scenes to which are you referring i'll just say this and get it out of my system because it it shouldn't matter it doesn't actually affect the uh love i actually have for this movie too badly but you know does jake really suffocate someone underwater huh he kind of gets the colonel in a headlock cuts off his air supply you know with a classic choke didn't think about that the colonel's not breathing though the the man's underwater so he kind of taps him out chokes him out underwater and he just drifts away that's a good point well okay but he causes him a lot of stress and anxiety and that causes you to like um use your oxygen supply faster so maybe he just was like expediting yeah that's totally that's what the colonel would do in that situation isn't it this like machine of a man hell-bent on destroying whatever well let's google can you strangle someone who's holding their breath that's what we need to google right now (laughs) i think they can drown but they didn't show his drowning then the number of times unconscious people held their breath underwater Maybe it's a Navi thing. I think so. But they were a little fast and loose with that. But then this is another one that I just, I was a little like, oh, that's a bummer. Like, where did the water Navi friends go? Yeah, I thought about that too. All the warriors were lined up in a line ready to fight. And then all of a sudden they were just gone. They're just not even there. They got their daughter They're just back. not even there. We don't see but them. they didn't even. She was still in the boat. She was, so the one was there, but her dad and mom, who her pregnant mom comes to fight. She's yeah, like, I will fight. I hated that. I, I was like, I'm all for like female empowerment and awesome warrior figure, princess, whatever. But she's a pregnant mom. Like pregnant moms should not rush into battle. It's actually probably wrong. It's taking an infant with you into battle. That's what it is. Would you do that? Yeah, no, no, you ought not. Can we take a moment, though, to admire that the whole time the ship is turning over? Like, that was just a really cool, dramatic way to end this. Like, with the whole boat turning over and it takes so long. It was kind of like watching Titanic, you know? But um, they're, like, scrambling up the sides and swimming in the crevices. And I just thought that that was a really um bold and impressive kind of uh, sequence to shoot and I really enjoyed it. Totally. And on the whole, I mean, those gripes aside, because the water people definitely could have swam in and rescued them. So forget about that. Blah, 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 blah. But I, they set up that climactic ending by showing us how uh, inadept the tree Navi are at being in the water. Yeah. So them drowning feels like a real threat the whole time. Yeah, right, right. I just want to say that's good world building. And it served the plot really well to the extent they used it. I just wish it was like, oh, why'd you drop the ball on the last? It was almost a grand slam. I still think it was a great movie, though. It was a great movie. So the themes, bro. Tell me about the themes. There were two like themes that I really thought or felt like they were going to deal with, but they Kind of didn't. Yeah. And then there's one theme that uh, was like front and center, and I think it's worth spending the most of our time on. All right. What are they? Well, the first theme I thought they were going to do is don't use violence or you'll end up the same as the violent humans. Yeah. Well, you have the the whales. Yeah. I'm just going to say the whales. The tar- 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 Yeah, I think it's okay tar- to tar- say tar- whales. Tar- <laughs> but they were, they were like half whale, half sea turtle, half goldfish. 
I love the design language. Half person. Half person. Well, super persons because they had more neuroreceptors or whatever. Yeah. And more yellow brain juice than humans. Totally. We don't have that much yellow brain juice, which is why they're so much smarter than us. We have significantly less. In fact, yeah. probably none. But whatever. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I caught this on my second watch. The whales have like taken a vow of non-combat. Like they will not fight back no matter what, which is why they're so easily poached. And the reason that the one whale is an outcast is because he did kill some people and they made it sound like, oh, he killed Navi. He's a rebel. He's a killer. He's a murderer. But then when you see the flashback, you realize he did kill... And, and I, they just said it. They didn't actually show it, which was a little confusing. They showed the carnage of what the people did to the whales and the Navi, but they didn't show that the outcast whale rallied a bunch of young bucks and they went and took down some uh, sky people boats. They didn't show that. They just said that. And and I kind of think it would have had more impact if we had seen the whales doing violence and been like, <gasps> kind of horrified about that and then realized, oh, but they were just... Um, they were avenging their dead, like, pod mates or whatever. So do you think, Carlin, that the film is landing on, hey, sometimes violence is appropriate against people who are murdering innocent people? Do you think that's where the film was trying to go with that? Yeah, well, it it's echoed in uh, Natiri the whole time is like, I can't do nothing. Like, we have to fight. We have to fight. We have to fight. And Jake is like, I'm afraid I have to protect my family. That's the only thing I know how to do. And I kept waiting for them to bring it back to Natiri, who is this vicious warrior, you know, and they kind of set her up like uh, Spider has these moments where he sees her being really freaky scary and he's like a little like shaken by that. And I thought that's fascinating, but they didn't land that plane. And then um, you kind of are waiting for Natiri to be proven right. Like sometimes you fight. Um, sometimes you stand up, which is what they did in the first movie, you know? So I was a little confused at Jake's storyline. Yeah. He he opens up by saying happiness is simple, but it's fragile, right? Yeah. And then he runs from his problems. So that was going to be the second theme. Yeah. He, it's a little bit like Lion King. He's Simba and he's bringing his family away from the problems thinking he can run. I bought that yeah. as an initial thing that Jake's running into. Yeah, he's a warrior, but he just wants to run. But then it's a little bit like, where's the moment where he goes, okay, time to fight. And I think that they wanted to have that, yeah. but... It felt like again and again, they just kind of kept him in that place of like, no, no, I don't want to fight. Like when he grabs the little tracking device in front of all the sea people who are ready to fight with him. And he's like, no, you'll die. You'll die. Yeah. But then he's like, oh, okay, well, we should probably go save our family. So it's like only when his immediate family is in danger, does he fight, which I want to say is fine, but it doesn't feel like the weight of where this uh, franchise puts its moral calculus. It's actually that you need to fight on behalf of the Navi and on behalf of Ewa herself. You have to do what's right. But yeah. it's like Jake's storyline ended only when his immediate family was in danger. So he's like, okay, now I'll fight. And they buttoned it up by saying, that's our greatest you know, strength is that Sully stick together. But it's also our greatest weakness that Sully stick together. I wonder, Carlin, if 
part of the problems we're experiencing right now is because this is a sequel to be followed by many more sequels. So they have yeah. not landed the plane on any of these. On any account. <laughs> on any of these main questions. Like even the question I was going to ask is like, what was the deal with Natiri threatening to kill Spider? I, that was the plot line I cared the most about was Spider being afraid of Natiri, Natiri being like deadly scary. Yeah. And and not very nurturing towards him. She's like protective of her own children. But yeah, they, they did never resolve that one. Yeah. So, I mean, really they're asking us to put some faith in the film, in the sequels that they're going to make, you know, in another 10 to 20 yeah. years. Yeah, I don't know if I'll be alive that long. <laughs> I know. Um, one other thing that kind of irked me, and again, maybe they're going to resolve this, but that Jake abdicates his responsibility like that. It felt like a move, like, okay, we're done with the forest people. We got to get to the water people because that's where the bulk of the film's going to be. I love that. It was beautiful. But I was bothered, but he was like the chief. He united the tribes. He had like been honored with this role. He married the princess. Like he had become Maktu. Turek Maktal. Whatever. Boom. Nice. Then just um, abdicated like at the drop of a pin and... Maybe that's okay in Navi culture. Like maybe in Navi culture, it, you can just abdicate your responsibility. But I just, I would much rather see him take the mantle of responsibility and, and not abandon his people so quickly. Okay, so maybe he's protecting his clan mates from the sky people. Like they're coming for us. We'll sure. just remove ourselves from the equation. But then he just blazingly puts these other tribes <laughs> in harm's way. And, like, somehow that's better than endangering other Na'vi. Like, it just didn't feel very noble to me. To me, Carlin, all of those questions are valid and forgivable. And not just forgivable. I think they're, they're great storytelling, depending on how they land the plane. If he hands off leadership to this kind of shaky, nervous guy of the tree people and then disaster befalls him because he's not there and he comes back and goes, I messed up big. I'm willing to say, great, that was intentional storytelling. Yeah. It just felt a little confusing, which I think is what you're honing in on. I think they wanted to land the plane on, we got to deal with our problems. But that theme of family kind of eclipsed it to the point where it's like, Jake Sully is just in this for his family. And he kind of hangs the sea people out to dry like the tree people. So maybe he has more growth to do as a character. And we're meant to hold on and wait for the sequels before they tie that up. If that's where they're landing it, like, okay, the, our takeaway from this film is family, right? It's very Fast and Furious of them. But they're also kind of toying with what does family mean? Because you also have characters like Spider, who even though I didn't, I didn't love the actor, I felt like it was a little awkward. He's just a teen. He's just a teenage bro, bro. The poor guy had to be naked the whole time and everybody else was naked, but it didn't feel the same. <laughs> <laughs> he was just so naked, you know. Yeah, <laughs> poor poor fella. He was the most interesting character to me. What would it be like to be a human trying so hard to be Navi and oh, there's man. just no way you can't be. Like you're physically limited, you're spiritually limited. That's a real struggle felt by a lot of people. I think mm. we've all felt that longing. And this is where I was going to say, so the real theme, the one that they set up and executed well in this film, and I really do think they did it well, was belonging. Mm. So, you know, sometimes we talk about on this show, like different franchises have different motifs and you just can't escape it. It's almost what makes yeah. 
the film, like the Spider-Mans are all about with great power comes great responsibility. Batman is all about where's that thin line between what's right to do outside of the boundaries of the law. You know, where do you become a dangerous bad vigilante and where are you a hero? I think Avatar will always and forever as a central theme be dealing with belonging. And I think that played out with every single character in this. I think they start off by teaching their kids how to belong in the forest, but then all these forest Navi are sent to the uh, water where they suddenly don't belong. So they're all dealing with not belonging there. I really liked how they played up the, they're like freaks with four fingers on their hands. Yeah, that was cool. Because even though they're all Navi, none of them really belong. And they're trying their best to like figure out how they belong on this earth. I thought that was such a, a really compelling twist to the original Avatar movie. Yeah. I mean, that was the original theme, right? Like Jake is an outsider disconnected from his home, from his body, from his friends, or they aren't friends, from his team. Right. And then he learns how to belong and integrate into a utopia of connectedness. Right. And now the whole family is experiencing that same kind of upheaval where they're a fish out of water. (laughs) It wasn't it wasn't that good of a joke. If we add some air horns, it'll sound fine. And so now they're all but they belong together. So the solution is they belong together in a family. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the most compelling of the Sully's is the younger brother who is the son of, you know, Turuk Maktal, the big dino writer. And he's just desperate to find out where he belongs. And like his dad, he's a fighter and a rule breaker. He's just like Jake Sully. And I think they delivered on that storyline so sweetly because the younger son kind of finds his path to belonging. He meets his whale friend. He falls in love with the water. Navi, each of those moments were actually really... Yeah, they were tenderly done, really well executed. And I think ah, it was so satisfying to wrap that sort of mini arc up at the very end when he's with his dad in the upside down boat and he recites kind of that water creed that he's learned and he helps his dad. His dad is a warrior, but he's done. He's like beaten up. He doesn't think he can do it and he needs his son. And so his son actually comes through on that for him. I really loved how they delivered that theme. Both parents had to learn how to rely on their kids to survive. Ooh, say more. Like you said, Jake's tapped out. He's like, you can make it, but I can't. I'm just going to die here. And he's like, no, dad, I'm going to teach you how to breathe. We're going to do this. It's going to be okay. And then at the same moment in the other little chamber, you've got Kiri is coming to rescue Natiri. Is it Katie or Kiri? Kiri. I I kept hearing Katie. Kitty. Kiri. Casey, got to get the pronunciation Uh, right. Gosh. People are going to be like, does he even know? No, you're right. No, you're completely right. They have a movie podcast. By the way, a little side note. Do you know how many people, do you know how many people are like, hey, have you seen this obscure movie from 1984? And I'm like, uh, no. And they're like, don't you have a movie podcast? I wanted to bring that up on our movie podcast bonus episode because I get that all the time. And you know what I've realized? I haven't seen any movies. I've seen almost no movies. (laughs) Everyone's seen more movies than me, apparently. Don't you have a movie podcast? We can't. We're only human beings. We've seen the movies that we do episodes about, okay? <laughs> so anyways, I didn't get the strong sense that um, Kiri was was a freak. Like, she kind of felt like she was, and one of those guys accused her of being. But she's always felt like she belonged in her family. Like, her mom is very attentive to her, and her dad is very attentive to her. 
Which that moment where they're like sitting, she's sitting there having a sweet moment with her dad. And he's like, what does Ewa's heartbeat feel like? Which felt like a, hey, I believe you. But I don't, maybe I missed it. Did they ever doubt her? I think there's, that's the complexity of that character. I mean, her real mom is in a vat. Think about that. Like she goes and visits her real mom, sits on top of the vat. I mean, adoption is a, I think just in the real world, is a beautiful solution that brings so much joy and belonging and happiness, but it's a solution to a heartbreaking problem every time. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so an adopted family is a real family, but I think an experience common to a lot of adopted kids, even as adults, is trying to find that sense of belonging. That's a lifelong journey they go on. Asking who their real parents were, I think that's a natural and totally relatable feeling to have let alone i think she's just yeah they're all a little bit of the oddball but she's really an oddball she's the daughter by apparently immaculate conception of a human scientist avatar's body so i think that's enough for me to really i understand why she's searching for belonging and can't really find it and i think that's why she has such a bond with spider he's the son Mm. of the colonel in his human form, whose dad is now a Navi. It's right. like, it's so convoluted. And they're both kind of adopted into the Sully family, but they're both really wrestling with what it means to belong there. I, I, I found that, I found both of their story arcs really compelling. Yeah, I just, I, I really want to know how they're going to land all these planes because I feel like we're limited in what we can talk about without knowing where they're going with them. Totally. And yeah, and I think Spider is the perfect example of that. His struggle is so relatable. He kind of gets left behind by the Sullys accidentally. He's captured by the Colonel. And I think where they're really driving home that quest for belonging is how badly we, the audience, long for him actually, I know this is crazy, but to kind of connect with his dad, the colonel. And it's warped, it's convoluted. Every alarm bell is saying, this is the villain, don't trust him. But when he goes into that containment cell and just speaks like a normal person to Spider and just is like, look, man, I can help you out here. I know it's Stockholm syndrome, but I think to me what that illustrates is how powerful that belonging desire is in people that I'm almost rooting for it or longing for that connection to happen between them. Well, and you see for the first time we see the colonel have uh, a moment. Well, that's not the first moment, but this movie is the first time we see his character have a more complex side. Like in the first one, he's just a cold, hard killer. Like he does not care. Yeah. He enjoys the thrill of the chase. Like he doesn't even, he's not even really about getting unobtainium. Like he's just about lighting up some trees. <laughs> like that's all he cares about. Yeah. Um, And then revenge, right? And so that's kind of what he starts out on is it's kind of a revenge journey against Jake, and but mostly about Natiri. I thought that was kind of interesting that he he has Jake pegged, but he feels more personally attacked by Natiri because he he goes and sees his human body and holds his skull in his hand, which I'm like, that's so trippy. Yeah, and a really cool scene. Let's be honest, that scene was awesome. Did you notice? I only saw it the second time, but when he turns the head on the skull, you have the scars. The scars. Yeah, that was really interesting. So. He feels a little softened. I felt like the first moment was when he realizes that his human body is dead. Yeah. Before he died, he's like, oh, yeah, that's never going to happen. Like in the video feed, he's like, oh, that's never going to happen. Like whatever. And then he's watching the video and he goes, okay, I guess I am dead. Uh, and that is a like a little bit of a chink in his armor. And then he moves on from that and he's like going to get, um, he's like, we're going to get Jake. Like hoorah, we're all these like ex-Marines. And then... 
he sees the Natiri arrow and he's like, oh. And and you just start to see more and more uh, feeling in him. It's still very driven by anger and hate. But then when yeah. he sees Spider and he realizes like, wait, I have a son? And he doesn't want to own him as a son. But, but he can't he help can't, it. He can't escape the the attachment that he feels for him. Yeah. It's so convoluted, but it's so compelling. That's actually the makings of a great character. Yeah. And yeah, the colonel is riffing on belonging too. Hmm. Ironically, he's probably the one who feels the most comfortable where he is. He's totally on team, you know, Earth colonizing Pandora. Right. You but know? now he's an he's an avatar. He's not even an avatar. He's full Navi body. Like he's not in the program. Yeah. He's fully in his weird enemy body. Yeah. What a bizarre twist, right? And I was, I'm still so curious to see where they're going to go with that. You know, one thing, Carlin, I just wanted to ask about is what you made of the scene where Natiri cuts Spider because oh. the colonel doesn't kill. Who does he have? Who's he well, holding hostage? Well, he holds hostage Kiri. Kiri and little Bebopper like several times. Oh, little Bebop. Yeah, I forget her name. The colonel doesn't kill little Bebop Two. at the end. It's like his one moment of humanity is actually used against him mm. by the good guys. Here's my question. Was that intentional on the part of the filmmakers? Are they are they going to say, look, Natiri has gone too far in this? Is she going to have to redeem that action? Do you think, do you feel like that's true? Or do you feel like uh, it's just a continuity error? No. No, I think Natiri, she's like fierce mama bear, but she has, she's cold towards Spider. But she's not cold towards Kiri. And I think she's going to have to reckon with that. Um, she's very protective of her own, but the line of who is really Navi and who is not Navi is already blurry. So she's going to have to deal with who is her family truly. And who is she going to accept spider who is an orphan? Like for all intents and purposes, like you want to see the Sully's embrace him, but they don't fully embrace him. Like the kids do, (sighs) but you don't see Natiri embrace him the way you really kind of are longing to. So yeah, I think she is going to have to reckon with that choice. That's so good. She's pushing Spider into the arms of the colonel. So I think he's going to have to decide too. Am I going to be on the side of the Na'vi who have rejected me again and again, even though I've been just desperate to be part of their clan? Or am I going to go with this colonel who, even though he's not my real dad, but I feel more connection to him and he's he's kind of got a soft spot for me but it betrays everything I know and love. He's going to have to yeah. kind of come to a head, I think. That's a compelling character. And I like what you said that the lines between human and Navi are blurred. And so we're having to redefine what it means to belong. I think, honestly, Carlin, that's the mark of a good sequel. It's not just evoking nostalgia. Like, I'm going to tip my hand here, but The Force Awakens, the seventh Star Wars episode, yeah, was a terrible sequel. And I, well, I'll defend that one to my death. It was visually stunning, but it was a terrible sequel because it added almost nothing new to the entire franchise. Yeah, It just had a bunch of fourth wall breaking flashbacks so people could go, the Millennium Falcon. They didn't care about telling a new good story. I mean, they tried. They kind of had to. I like Ray. I like the new characters they add. My gripe is that the writing never did anything with them. They couldn't get on the same page with what they wanted to do. So what we were left with was a grab bag of cheap nostalgia. Yep, fan service. I don't think Avatar The Way of Water fell into that trap. I think they're comfortable telling new stories that are compelling and grounded in the world that they've created. I really appreciate that. Hey, I have another question for you. This is a follow-up from our conversation about Avatar 1. Remember, we spent quite a bit of time asking about Awa... Because that was kind of one of the primary yeah. themes of that first movie. What do you feel like we learned about Awa in this in this movie? 
What a question. I don't know, Carlin. I even was going to ask you, does Awa take sides in this one? Because that was a theme. They're like, Awa doesn't take sides, but then she does. Yeah. But kind of where was Awa in this one? I don't know. That was my where was that was my dominant theme. Oh well, I think I wonder if the answer is Kiri. Awa has, like you said, it's almost like immaculate conception. Somehow, Awa has um, decided to infuse her presence into an avatar body that was grown in a test tube, and then she is gets impregnated. Mm. But um, uh, the only thing that stuck out to me was you hear Grace say in a flashback, I can't use the word intelligence. It's more like an awareness. It's a global response, immune response. And then you kind of, there's this this element where the humans, when they become like the sky people, when they get their Navi bodies, like the colonel and his, and his gang, the forest stops attacking them. Like the immune response is pulled off and then you hear spider saying a couple lines about um like oh i think the animals respect me more when i have blue oh interesting and so i think there really is like built into the biology of pandora kind of like white blood cells attacking uh, a virus is that good science (laughs) when a foreign object is present nature tends to like attack it viciously um so interesting because Grace was a human and she gets accepted into Awa as a human, not as a Navi, as a fully right. human. And Jake becomes accepted into Awa. Awa is more like Gaia in that she's not a person, uh, not even really aware, but she's a network of awareness. But it, it is just interesting that now we have a person who is so connected to Awa. She's like tapped into the power. She's able to yeah. literally manipulate. Awa is interesting that even though they they are trying to keep Awa from being a person like a deity, but it feels like they can't help but move her towards being more personable. Yeah, it's so interesting, and it's so hard to say where Judeo-Christian ideas are coming in to the making of this versus Eastern ideas, because in Eastern religions, Hinduism for sure, there's definitely lots of incarnations. Everyone knows about reincarnation, right, which is Mm -hmm. kind of a theme, but there's also incarnations of various deities kind of coming to earth for a little bit, and they're uh, super tapped into the spiritual dimension. Hmm. So that's that's a common theme in sort of Eastern Hindu sort of religions, but it's also the theme of Christianity, and it differs from Eastern religions in the sense that God is both transcendent, in other words, he's outside of nature, he is not the same thing as nature, but he's also imminent in the Mm. sense that he is fully present with us uh, as only the creator of everything, the omnipotent creator can be. But then he's also incarnate in the form of Jesus. So it's interesting. It's, it's really hard to say where those lines cross. I just think it reflects some of our intuitions about what we're longing for from the spiritual world. We want there to be personhood hmm. because we're people and we recognize people as being the highest good, right? There's a reason why they say family and not, you know, trees or dirt. Like those <laughs> things are yeah. valuable and they're a part of Awa, but they're not, it's something else is happening with family. We're drawn towards people. Yeah. And the cardinal sin of the villains in this movie is failing to recognize personhood when they see it in the whales. Oh, uh, yeah. And in the Navi. And in basically everyone and everything. They're just hell-bent <laughs> on making money, am I right? Cha-ching! <laughs> Bring, get that brain juice. 
I want to say that that is, hey, whoa, that's a caricature. No one's really like that. But to be honest, Carlin, I think a Christian worldview commits us to what the doctrine is called total depravity. That actually, mm-hmm. it's not that people are as bad as they could possibly be, just that every aspect of our hearts is inclined towards evil in some way that we can't really shake free of. Mm. And there have been cultures and civilizations And this is why we need to be watchful over our Mm. culture, whatever that might be, because people are fully capable of clicking into profit mode over the well-being of everything around them. That's a fully biblical idea. Totally. I think what's more dangerous for most people is becoming like the scientist guy who is like, that's why I drink. Um, he's fully aware of what they're doing, but he's decided to numb out his conscience. And yeah. there are people who yeah. are so committed to get, you know, their dollar and they're they're blind and kind of stupid, you know? But this guy, he does something that we all have the the danger of doing every day, which is we know something's not right, but we've decided to sear our conscience a little bit and just go ahead and do it anyways because it's the easy thing, because I don't feel like I have a choice. Maybe we make excuses about it. Like, well, it's not my fault. Like, I didn't decide to kill these whales. But he's complicit and he is responsible as well. I kind of wish they had given him a moment of fighting back. He, totally. he gets a little mouthy, but he doesn't ever, he doesn't ever actually do anything no. to defend the whales. He's not a hero. I wish he had been. Yeah. How many people on slave ships felt the oh. same way? Yeah. Probably a lot. Probably everyone who worked on a slave ship unless they were a genuine sociopath, psychopath, which we have to square with the fact that probably the majority of people who were in the slaving economy were not, we can't just write it off as a psychological issue. We have to deal with the moral dimension. They seared their consciences because they wanted something more than they valued the personhood of of the human beings around them. So probably a lot of them had pangs of guilt, but they found a way to deal with it. And the danger, see, the modern world is so focused on the danger that, uh-oh, what if I keep feeling guilty my whole life and I never find peace oh, or resolution? Yeah. That we are blind to the danger that you actually are fully capable of searing your conscience forever yeah. and digging yourself in such a deep rut of behavior that you can't get out of it. That is a fully possible avenue human beings can travel down. So scary. So Carlin, it feels like we're really getting into our Christian worldview. So let's just, let's just pivot and get into that. It's, it's officially Christian worldview section. You know, to me, the world of Pandora evokes something in every person that the story of scripture would just say is the idea of Eden. Right, the Garden of Eden. We're longing for a way that we are so hungry for the world to be like, mm-hmm. where people and nature are in harmony, mm-hmm. um, and the world is just gorgeous. Like when you approach a weird object in the sea, you're not immediately like, "This is gonna kill me." <laughs> yeah, I understand what it is. I'm wise, and I'm uh, I can have I can engage with nature fearlessly and just delight in it. And yeah. I think the filmmakers just. Uh, take that theme forward front and center. It's the banner project of Avatar is like evoking Eden in all of us. Yeah. They wouldn't call it Eden because I'm sure they're not coming at it from a Christian worldview. But I think a Christian worldview is the older and deeper story that explains that longing in human beings. We're longing for a world that hasn't fallen and been corrupted by evil. Sin 
um, in that story of Genesis, you know, Eden is the way that the world's meant to be, but sin comes in and that disrupts the relationships between man and the earth. It disrupts relationships between man and woman, between humanity and each other, between man and animals, and in between animals and animals. Like it disrupts all the unity and all the harmony. And there's a new system in play that is one of um, like domination, exploitation, selfishness. Exactly. Yeah. Uh huh. Listen, I think in our first episode, we tried to address the uh, ways that a Christian worldview pushes back against Avatar. For example, pantheism mm-hmm. it just doesn't cut it to me. You need a personal God. You need a God who's transcendent and exemplifies good as opposed to evil. God can't have good and evil in his nature. Like whatever else Awa is, Awa can't be the creator of everything because Awa arises from the existing material of that planet, right? Awa is literally found in the trees and in the rocks and in the stuff. She can't be the transcendent God of the cosmos who stands outside of everything and can therefore create and control it. She's a really nice piece of science fiction, but I just don't think she's a worthy enough object of worship. I think what we're longing for, pantheism can't provide. So I want to be clear about that. And I want to be clear that these filmmakers are not coming at this from a Christian worldview. And I wish they were, because everything that they love and are desiring, I think is found in the story of reality that the Bible presents, right? And it gives us, like you're saying, compelling answers about the fall. But I think that fall impacts exactly what you're saying, that theme of belonging. We want to belong, first of all, to the God who made us. Mm-hmm. So when they're praying and crying out to Awat, that's a deeply relatable experience. We're crying out to the higher power that we sense it is responsible for our existence and who's beneficent and can help us and save us. They have power. We want to be reconciled to that creator. We are dying to be reconciled to the created world and belong in the world that we live in. What a deep desire mm-hmm. that is for so many people. I just saw Ellen uh, standing in her back patio. You know, California is getting a ton of rain. And she was like, mm-hmm. we need to be kind to the earth because the earth is not being kind to us. And there was like some elevated water in her river behind her or whatever. But you can just sense like I, I resonate with all modern Western people living in our concrete blocks hungry to be reconciled to the earth that we sense we're a part of. Mm-hmm. We want to be reconciled to family. And, you know, in my mind, that really calls out to modern people because we are so lonely. We're so devoid of family and community and tribes. Like we've lost something about God's design for people in community in the modern world because we're detached. Right now, the majority of American households are single people living alone. Mm. So when you see a family with four kids and a bunch of adopted kids and a stable, loving mom and dad, there's something about that that's beautiful and calls out to me. I long for that. The Weasleys. The Weasleys. Yes. And we want to belong in a tribal sense, like the language we speak, the culture we inherit. We want, we want to feel like it's okay to celebrate it as good and beautiful and true. Mm-hmm. And we're detached because of the evil that often accompanies our culture. But right now, I think for modern Americans in particular, that pendulum has swung so hard that we have a really hard time feeling comfortable in our own culture in a good sense. We're mm-hmm. like seared. We've seared the ends of those you know, nerves and arteries to like keep ourselves from feeling comfortable in our culture. In, in our culture and in our spirituality and in almost all those arenas, 
you know, but, but I think there's kind of a resurgence and a desire for those things to try to find family and find belonging and get, even if it's just your like fandom page on Facebook, you know, totally. Or like, you know how every joke on TikTok is a relatability joke. Like, can you relate to this obscure random experience that <laughs> right. like pushing a pole door or something like that? Like that kind of a thing. And then also this longing for nature. And even like there's kind of like a fad of resurgence of witchcraft and Wiccanism. That's like this desperate clinging for any kind of spiritual feeling or connectedness to nature. It's like it's like we seared those pieces off, but we can't get rid of that that desire for it. Your point to, you know, that kid spider, I think really gets to the crux of this issue as it hits me in the real world. Like, what do you do if your body is not made for Pandora? You know what I mean? Like, you can have hmm. the emotional relationship of an adopted family, but like, you never really belong there. That's the conundrum that this raises. Like, when you think about, dream about, ah, oh, mm -hmm. man, wouldn't it be cool to be on Pandora? You're never picturing yourself as a human being, because that would suck. You're picturing yourself as someone who's built to yeah. belong there. So what do we do if we are like intrinsically, we feel as though we don't belong on in this world, right? Or we, we just are incapable of reaching that sense of belonging in a tribal family or creative sense, or even with our creator. And that's where I think our worldview is beautiful. That's where I think Christianity sings. And I even wanted to read a little bit from Ephesians chapter 2, because when Jesus came and uh, lived his life on the earth, he was reconciling two branches of humanity. One were the Jews, God's chosen people, who were blessed by him uh, and designed to be a blessing on the earth. The other hmm. was the Gentiles, mm -hmm. everybody else, right? And when Paul is describing Jesus' ministry, what he says is this, Remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God wow. through the cross. It's just a beautiful passage of scripture, right? And it's getting to this heart of belonging. Because this is where I think people misunderstand Christianity. They think mm -hmm. it's about just getting right with God, and it just it stops there. But being saved in a Christian sense, making Jesus the Lord of your life, does not stop with just this sort of thin, vertical, spiritual relationship with God. It, it extends into every relationship you have. It's about getting right with God and then getting right with your fellow people and getting right with the created order and mm -hmm. even getting right with yourself with this distorted, warped, evil that we find in all of our hearts and that we can't seem to get rid of, it's about making peace with that so you can finally hmm. rest in your own skin. So that the way we do that is by starting with the God who made everything, because he's God and he, he deserves our allegiance. But when you humble yourself and you come to him and you say, I actually want what Jesus is offering, the point of Christianity then is that you're also able to get right with every other sphere of existence and live as we were meant to live, as though you truly belong. Wow. 
That's, I mean, that's really cool. I, a coworker just sent me this really interesting video about um, the logos of God. And the video is coming from a different perspective, not Christian, but it was talking about how uh, the the opening of the gospel of John, how the logos of God, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us and how logos is this concept of order and rightness. And, um, and that to me, Mm. that's exactly what you're saying, that God is a God of order and unity and harmony. And, um, when we're restored back to him, we're finding our, our place back in that created order. And it's like a, just a breath of fresh air, like a sigh of relief. I think a lot of Christian theologians right now are talking about the idea of embodiment and how Jesus didn't just come as an idea or the sum of all good virtues that we can sort of abstractly think about. He actually chose to be a human being. And I think for me where that hits home is just the reminder then that it's okay for me to be a human being. Uh, in the words of my friend and Covenant College professor Kelly Capick, you're only human. Um, God actually designed human beings to have limitations. And because he chose to be one of us, that actually means it's okay for us to have certain limitations as well. Jesus by no means minces words with human evil. Okay, he, he nails that on the head. And he gives us a solution. It's repentance. Turn away from your evil. Let him be the king of your life like he's supposed to be. He's God, you know? So, and evil really is the primary issue that we're dealing with. But there's also just the normal, everyday sense in which human beings have limitations. And in our modern world, so much of our technology and our culture is designed to get us to be in this cerebral space on the internet. Like, literally, the number of hours a day I spend looking at LED screens, imagining I'm somewhere else. I don't even know where, disembodied mm-hmm. reading, you know, loads of text with what I do is different than how Jesus, he reminds us that like those limitations are okay. It's okay to be aware of your body. Case in point, he's taking a nap in the boat yeah. while they're fishing and the wind and the waves are, are upon him. Presumably this was because <laughs> the son of God was tired, right? And what that reminds me of is like, it's okay to feel tired. Gosh, like, and when you feel tired, you should sleep. You shouldn't muscle through it necessarily. I mean, there might be times where you should for the greater good, right? If your priorities are rightly aligned. But one thing Jesus reminds me is it's okay to be human, be human. One other thing that comes to mind is when I'm taking communion, sometimes like I can get caught up in in wanting to have spiritual feelings and experiences and like, well, I'm singing worship music or reading my Bible or whatever. And I'm so focused on like trying to grasp like a higher spiritual connectedness kind of feeling. But there's a real comfort in when you're given a physical piece of bread and a physical sip of wine and you can take that and know I am I'm participating in Christ's Mm. death and resurrection in this moment. Like I'm receiving his redemption for me and I don't have to feel a certain way to do it. I can literally chew my mouth and swallow this wine. Like that's all it takes. And I don't want to say it counts because it's not that it counts for anything, but your body counts. Your your physicality matters. 
You're not just um, a brain on a stick. You're not like a soul that's been trapped within a physical body. You are your body. In uh, Union with Christ, uh, there's this great book called Union with Christ, and I'm blanking on the author right now, but I'll check it out in a second. And he says, the reason why uh, ghosts and corpses are equally scary to us is because they're a separation Mm. of your soul and your body. I think that's so good. Yeah, and here's the other aspect that I'm thinking of too. Christianity makes sense of, we call it four chapters of humanity's story. There's creation, which I under I need to understand. What was I made mm. to do? What were people made for? And I think, you know, Avatar and Pandora gives us a glimpse into James Cameron's vision of what of what that could be. I think it it's incredible. It's beautiful. Christianity also gives us fall. How do we understand what's gone wrong with the world? It's not that there's good guys and bad guys. Although definitely, as we were saying, entire cultures can act in a very fallen, villainous way. But in each of us, there's a sense in which creation Mm -hmm. has been ruined and distorted by the fall. But then there's redemption, like we're talking about with Christ, and restoration. And I find another powerful area of my life where that happens is in the Mm -hmm. realm of like tribes. Because I don't even know if this makes sense, but it feels like there's kind of a purity test you need. Like, if you're going to love your culture, it has to hit like X, Y, or Z levels of purity test. You know, like, have you ever colonized anyone? You know, is there recent evil? You're saying the purity of your tribe? What do you mean by tribe? Yeah, it's, I I guess I mean your, uh, like, intellectual tribe. Like, for me, it'd be, yeah, Mm -hmm. like, like Christians, you know. Or your family on an immediate sense. Like, has my family ever done anything wrong? Like, if they've done something problematic, yeah. I basically need to hold them at arm's length, right? And then my nation, most of all, right? Like, we're just, we're just detached from that. But on every level, that sense of belonging to community is detached. But what Christianity tells me is that because my primary identity is in Jesus and what he's done for me, not as being an American, like, rah-rah, it actually lets me feel comfortable as an American critiquing that which needs to be critiqued, but also just accepting people who are flawed because Jesus accepted me Mm. while I was flawed. And I'll just give you one story where this really hit home for me. I was doing like a prayer meeting. It was really fun. It was just like a casual lunch that turned into like just prayer. (laughs) Everyone just felt like praying and asking God. This was 2016. Mm. So stuff was like really chaotic. Oh, it was a little later than that. Maybe it was 17 or 18. And Politics in the U.S. were chaotic. And in this prayer session, my friend David, who's Australian, he was just praying and praying. And at one point, he just said, Lord, I just repent of the arrogance and the disdain I've held for Americans Whoa. over this last year. I'm so sorry. They've, I love my brothers and sisters who are American, and I'm sorry for the ways that I've allowed I, don't, I can't even remember what he said, but he just allowed kind of bitterness in his heart towards America hmm. and Americans. And kind of let them be the whipping boy. And what he wasn't saying is everything America's done is therefore fine. It wasn't passive aggressive in any way. (laughs) You know what I mean? He wasn't like trying to make a point by repenting of like, Lord, I'm sorry that I've, you know, he just was like being honest. And in that moment, I felt like healed in a way that I didn't know I needed to be healed. It's like, here's my Australian friend, my brother who sees my culture, but he's not like disgusted or turned off by those elements of it. He loves me. He accepts me. And he like loves my tribe. He sees the good in it. And I think that exemplifies what we just read from Ephesians 2, that there's the dividing wall of hostility has been brought down. And it's not that we stop doing moral judgment. It's that there's a posture of welcome and acceptance towards people. So 
I guess all that to say is like, we're not like human beings stranded on Pandora. We're Navi. We're, we're in a sense, you're allowed to feel relaxed and at home in one sense in the world that God has created, even as you wrestle with the tension of feeling like, ah, it doesn't always mm-hmm. line up. And I think it just starts with, if you're interested in exploring Christianity, you can start by reading Jesus's words, and you can start by having an honest conversation with your creator. This isn't some foreign yeah. entity to you. This is the one who made you and made you to belong in community in your own body, in the world that we inhabit. That doesn't mean that things haven't gone wrong down here. There's the dealt with. But in the meantime, it's like he's offering reconciliation Mm -hmm. to you. And ironically, I think in Avatar, that same process happens in the first one where Jake Sully abandons his old ways and kind of assumes a new identity where he's reconciled to this, to Ewa, who runs Mm -hmm. Pandora, right? But magnify that because you're not just pledging allegiance to a local deity. You're pledging allegiance to the god of the cosmos who invented everything. Every I, uh, I'm reminded his. of that scene in the first one where Jake is praying to Awa, which as a viewer, you're kind of like, oh man, he's embracing um, Pandora. He's kind of aligning himself spiritually with her. But Natiri says, Jake, uh, Awa doesn't pick sides. Um, we talked about this in our last podcast and there's a sense there's a negative truth in that where i think if you feel disconnected from your world the world you live in planet earth and the people around you and f- from your god call out to him talk to him but also know that if it's his world it's on his terms um like i hear a lot of yeah. people even just the other day a good friend was saying well you know, if I die and get to heaven, I'll just tell God, I'll be like, well, why didn't you make it clearer to me that you were real? Like, I, you're you're reasonable. I'm reasonable. We can. Why can't we just reason this through? It doesn't sound yeah. arrogant on first hearing. But if yeah. you really are talking to the maker of the of the world, then this is his world and it's his terms. And if the, if you're not if you're ignoring the terms that he set, then you're out of line. Like you wouldn't talk to the king that way. Yeah. And what Avatar reminds me too, is that if you're going against um, God, you're going against the fabric of reality itself, the way it's supposed Mm. to be. Like we think of evil as a category as being different than, substantially different than like brokenness as a category. And they are different, but they're related. Yeah, You know what I mean? If I drink something that's not meant to be, it's a liquid, so I like physically can drink it, but it's not meant to be you know, ingested Tide Pods, you know, for example, it's, it's like, I'm going against the created order. I'm going against the way my esophagus naturally needs to function if I'm going to keep eating and breathing through it, you know? And so there's going to be consequences. So we're all, we're not neutral and we're definitely not on the, on the good guys. We're enemies of God. We're all enemies. You know, if we're on Avatar, we're the enemies of Awa, all of us. There's no group of Navi that are perfectly in harmony on this planet and in the real world. I, I agree that in like fantasy, it's okay to have a little more clear right. lines between good and evil. Tolkien did that. I think it's fine. I think they grapple with appropriate levels yeah. of complexity, but, um, but in the real world, all of us are God's enemies. None of us are like perfectly in tune, you know, with nature and it's no good trying. He, ah, I'll just end on this. Sorry. I've, I've talked a lot on this episode. It's no good trying to get in tune with nature. If you're going to ignore mm. the God who made it. 
And the, the reason why I think many of us, and I put myself in that category, I'm tempted to do that. I'm tempted to try to get right with God in other ways other than coming to him. But that's the height of arrogance too. It, and it just doesn't work. Mm. It's not going to work. You need to know the one who invented nature to fully appreciate the natural. And the beautiful thing is that God has made a way for you to come back and, and to restore that unity. He's, he, yeah. not only are you originally designed for that, and we have that longing, like it's a residual longing, but he, he's going to heal up that chasm. That's a, hopeful, that's a hopeful promise for those of us who feel like we don't belong, which is every At single person point, when they're being in honest way, yeah. in some way. Yep. It's the promise and future hope of belonging perfectly. So, Carlin, Avatar. I have a question for you. Would you rather be a, a forest Navi or a water Navi and why? I gotta say forest because their, their little banshees fly so high. Okay. Would you rather be the only Navi on planet Earth or the only human being on planet Pandora? Human on Pandora. Uh, no, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It would be... Not as easy as you think at first, well, is it? Well, yeah, there's a lot of implications here. Like, you'd have to be eight feet tall and blue, you know? Totally. You good with that? There's no power source. No, there's uh, no... <laughs> like, there's no banshees for you to ride. You You're just tall and blue. Small and pink and have be forever excluded. Would you rather, last one, would you rather have a whale friend or a banshee to ride? I know it's kind of the question we just asked, but you. But think about a whale friend. Think about a whale friend. Think about it. Would you rather have four fingers or three? <laughs> All right, I'm going to wrap us up there. This has been another exciting episode of Cinema Snorkel. Join us next time as we dive beneath the surface of the themes and the ideas in movies. Bye.